When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, my name is Ana Georgescu, and welcome to the New Books and Science podcast. Today's guest is Slobodan Perovic, author of From Data to Quanta, Niels Bohr's Vision of Physics, published by the University of Chicago Press in September of last year. It is a broad and insightful analysis of the renowned Niels Bohr's approach to physics, taking into account the historical context, the existing paradigms surrounding research, and the effects it had on the scientific community and beyond. Slobodan Perovic is a professor of the History and Philosophy of Science at the University of Belgrade. His work has been featured in the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, Studies in History and Philosophy of Modern Physics, Foundations of Science, and many more. Professor Perovic, it's great to have you today. Thank you very much. Thank you for uh, inviting me. So let's dive right in. In the introduction of your book, you describe the main goal as, and I quote, that of advancing a methodological understanding of Bohr's work through a historically motivated philosophical assessment of the scientific method as a constant and vigorous interplay between theory and experiment in the early development of quantum physics. That's quite a thesis. What drew your attention to Bohr's views specifically? Um, well, in at the beginning, I wasn't really drawn to... Uh... Or, uh, I mean, as sort of the, the leading figure, it was just sort of part of my interests. What really drew me into uh, the uh, history and philosophy of uh, early quantum mechanics uh, was a book by uh, Thomas Kuhn when I was a graduate student. And it was a book about the uh, black body uh, theory. It's, it's actually titled Black Body Theory and Quantum Discontinuity published, I believe, in 1978. Uh, So for those who are not uh, philosophers or historians of physics or don't read that uh, stuff, Thomas Kuhn is one of the major figures in uh, the second half of the 20th century and uh, famous for his uh, theory of uh, uh, scientific revolutions and the way that scientific revolutions developed. But this was not really the book that's uh, at least directly related to that work. It's sort of a seminal and very well-known work across disciplines. This this book outlined uh, kind of a, the first phase or sort of a prequel to the development of quantum mechanics that occurred at the end of the 19th and the beginning of the 20th century. Uh, and uh, it sort of dealt with the major puzzle at the time, which was called the ultraviolet uh, uh, catastrophe. So 
just very simply and briefly, uh, physicists couldn't really figure out uh, how to uh, overcome the practically uh, theoretical problem that uh, if you treat uh, atoms as oscillators uh, and then you sort of account for you know, their absorption and the radiation of energy uh, by looking at the frequency at which they oscillate, they would always get sort of infinite uh, values for the outgoing uh, uh, energy values of the so-called black body, so the body that ideally uh, radiates all the energy that it absorbs. And then uh, Max Planck, at the turn of the 19th to 20th century, uh, uh, offered his what he thought was sort of a tentative solution, kind of a, a, a model, a trick of sorts, to quantize energy and to say that energy can be emitted and absorbed only in sort of a uh, quanta of energy. And that, of course, sounded strange, but it worked in terms of equations and results. And Thomas Kuhn really writes about this uh, uh, particular uh, uh, sort of string of events in the history of physics that led to this episode and then sort of start of the development of the quantum mechanics. So I was completely impressed and mesmerized by, by uh, the detailed account and uh, also by the, the, that episode. And I started basically uh, looking at the history of early quantum mechanics, uh, having in mind my philosoph philosophical interests, because I'm really a philosopher of uh, science, I was interested how major uh, theories in physics came about and was there a sort of a unifying method uh, by means of which physicists uh, arrived at these uh, theories uh, and how these theories were related exactly to the experiments. And, but, or maybe there were more methods and so on. So then I tried to address these questions by looking at uh, early quantum mechanics and its history. And then I realized that Niels Bohr, who was one of a few major figures with major results in that period, was kind of controversial, actually. Among philosophers among many physicists too, and that that was also kind of intriguing. And then I sort of went on to try and figure out why was he controversial and what exactly was driving him to these major results uh, that he came up with and what whether there's there was a kind of a unifying method, so a, if you wish, technique that sort of led him to all this. So that was sort of a, the beginning of, <laughs> of all these interests. So for our listeners who need a quick refresher on physics, Niels Bohr is obviously a very big name, but would you mind going over the three main contributions you focus on in the book? Um, the atomic model, the principle of correspondence, and the principle of complementarity. Just give us a little bit of an overview of what these are. Sure. Uh, so... I mean, if we would grade them in terms of the importance and in terms of the sort of level of the breakthrough, uh, they're probably uh, 
sort of the, the first one is the most important one. The second one is sort of less, a uh, little less important than then the third one is. I mean, if we, we would really have to sort of do that, and I kind of say that in the book. Uh, so uh, the atom of the bottle uh, that Bohr uh, came up with or sort of constructed uh, was really a big breakthrough because at the time there, there were other uh, models of the atom, but uh, none of them were really uh, aiming at very precise quantitative agreement with the evidence or with the experimental results, and especially not with a number of key experimental results. Uh, so it was a very ambitious model. And prior to that, uh, there was uh, Rutherford's, uh, Thompson's, J.J. Thompson's famous experimentalist, another one, Ernst Rutherford, and Bohr worked in both of their labs. So Thompson uh, did the experiments with scattering of uh, light, uh, and then he realized that actually something that was sort of counterintuitive at the time, that atom is not a solid structure, a whole uh, uh, so to speak, but there's this st- sort of a structure, in, in, in internal structure to it, uh, based on the results of scattering that he uh, produced and light scattering. And then he basically came up with a sort of a plum pudding, pudding as it's usually characterized, uh, uh, um, model where you have sort of uh, uh, um, charges floating around the sort of pudding, in, in, uh, so to speak. Then Rutherford did his experiments, looked at some other related experiments, and then concluded that it's more structured, that it seems that the nucleus, the positive charge is in the, uh, uh, at the center, and then that the electrons are kind of floating around. And as I said, these were sort of very helpful uh, models, but they were kind of qualitative models. There were some other models of the atom too. And then uh, Bohr did a few remarkable things to arrive at that uh, model that looks like a planetary system that many of us encountered uh, in, in in high school. Uh, where the nucleus is at the center, and then the electrons are uh, circling around the nucleus at uh, different uh, orbits. Now, that was actually uh, a very uh, unintuitive, and it wasn't really predictable step. And it had to to connect many sort of uh, uh, different strands of research that didn't seem really uh, uh, connected inherently, and that's what uh, Bohr did. Just to mention one thing, he connected actually uh, quantitatively uh, the distribution of spectral lines in the experiments with the uh, atomic spectra, which were supposed to tell us how the internal structure of atom, uh, the atom looks like with his model, or more precisely with the distribution of these uh, orbits uh, of the electrons around the nucleus uh, extremely precisely. It was actually uh, unprecedented precision uh, uh, in connecting the distribution of the orbits and uh, 
the uh, distribution of the spectral lines in in these experiments, so-called Bolmer series, that were connected with the special rule uh, with with the distribution of the orbits. Now, how did he come up with this idea of the orbits and why are they interesting? Well, because he basically applied that Planck's uh, quantization of energy that I mentioned earlier and basically said, well, actually, these orbits are not randomly distributed the way that Rutherford thought. The electrons are not sort of floating around the uh, 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 nucleus because in that case, the atom would not be stable, but uh, they're distributed according to the Planck's rule, actually. So the frequency of light that's absorbed in the atom and that's uh, emitted uh, is actually corresponds to the frequency uh with which electron is orbiting uh, the nucleus. It was very simple, actually, to calculate. Very simple idea. I mean, once it was <laughs> worked out, obviously, to him. Of course. Uh, and then everybody was really happy uh, that finally there was something tangible. Uh, not everybody was happy uh, with some of the properties of that <laughs> model, but... We won't go into that now. So the second, <laughs> uh, the second uh, contribution was the so-called correspondence principle, and usually it's presented as kind of a uh, uh, if so the, the the orbits that I mentioned when you have a large number of these orbits in a very sort of a robust atom, if you if you want, or molecule. Uh, then uh, your uh, calculations or so your results for uh, uh, these frequ- uh, radiation frequencies start to look like classical results. So as if you can, you can basically approximate as if you are dealing with uh, non-quantized quantized, uh, atom or system. Uh, so to speak, very roughly and simplistically put. I mean, you're a physicist, so <laughs> you're aware <laughs> that I am approximating here uh, for our audience. So just to mention then, what what's really... Uh, so what was very helpful is that you could use the classical tools, theoretical tools, to account for these uh, uh, atomic uh, systems, let's say, uh, uh, qualified by large quantum numbers. Now, what's partic- what was particularly interesting to me, and I sort of dedicated one of the chapters there, is that it really, the way that, it was also kind of a controversial principle uh, as well among uh, Bohr's peers, but very useful. <laughs> they couldn't really sort of uh, 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 make progress in many areas uh, of quantum mechanics uh, at the time without it. But it really showed uh, that he was always trying to mediate between the experiments uh, and the theoretical, very abstract theoretical uh, uh, hypothesis, like his sort of a model of the atom was, and very kind of fairly simple, uh, uh, almost mundane experimental results in the experiments. And 
this was sort of the, the correspondence principle had that sort of a role. And then finally, if we sort of forward may, uh, some 10 years after this, after many other experiments and theoretical breakthroughs, uh, and the work of Heisenberg and Schrödinger and other uh, 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 physicists, um, Bohr tried to connect actually, I mean, typically it's uh, presented again in textbooks as a sort of a um, um, wave particle duality uh, 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 in, in, in the textbooks. Uh, now, in, in a way, Bohr is responsible for this because his view was that the particle properties or what seemed like particle properties of uh, radiation and uh, uh, matter are sort of pieces, elementary pieces of matter, and wave properties are kind of complementing each other. They are not contradicting each other, so the, the matter, or basic elements of matter uh, and uh, 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 radiation are not something that has to be either particle or wave, but can be something in between, again, very, very sort of simplistically uh, put. And then that was also um, kind of controversial, maybe the most controversial of his uh, three breakthroughs, I, I would say. And you discuss this kind of controversy that was um, born in the book a lot. And you also describe some of his biggest contenders with this uh, principle. I was going to ask, how did his approach to quantum phenomena interact with those of Heisenberg and Schrodinger, like big names at the time in physics? Uh, yeah, so uh, what I was really interested in is what led... Uh, bore to come up with the results that seemed inescapable and extremely useful to everybody, and yet people complained about the nature of these results. So, for example, the main complaint about his model was that, well, how can electron, when the atom actually absorbs energy or photon, and then the electron is supposed to jump to the uh, 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 this orbit of sort of higher orbit, uh, higher uh, uh, energy level. What what are these? I mean, it's completely unintuitive. People complained that there are these quantum jumps, right? That that nature can't work in terms of these quantum jumps, right? Then the uh, complaint about his correspondence, I mean, there were other complaints, but uh, but nobody, <laughs> yeah, the, the, nobody denied that his model is the best and can be used actually to make sort of progress, right? And that it has incredible agreement with the experimental results. Uh, and then the correspondence principle was also like his peers were puzzled. Those who actually used it, like for example, Zomerfeld, who who complained, well, you know, like, what? How did you come up with? Is this part of quantum theory? Is this something? that you cooked up some, somewhere in, in your dream or what, what's going on. And then he would try a different solution, which he thought was intuitive. He would fail and then say, well, yeah, I can't really do without correspondence principle, but man, it's, it's really annoying. <laughs> so, and then finally with his complementarity, all the sort of uh, hell broke loose and uh, people even uh, nowadays, philosophers, physicists complain that it's really vague and, uh, 
obscure. What does it mean that your your sort of elementary pieces of matter are both particle and wave, and these properties complement each other? What are we dealing with here, really in physical terms, right? So I was thinking, okay, they kind of have a point, right? <laughs> Uh, the main problem was, though, that one of the readings of how he came up with this was that he was really keen to push certain metaphysical views, sort of duality between, you know, mind and matter. And uh, then he, by analogy, thought of duality of matter and uh, of uh, wave and particles waves and particles, and it's how he arrived. So it was metaphysically driven, and he was really metaphysically driven to discontinuities, uh, even in his, uh, uh, when he constructed his atom. And so that was really the main source, as far as I could see, of disappointment and kind of uh, uh, dissatisfaction with his, uh, uh, with the, what was perceived as sort of incoherence of his uh, model and his principles, right, that he was... He had, like, a philosophical agenda to push. It's basically, yeah, it's basically as if he was pushing a philosophical agenda, and you can find, I mean, he was very broadly educated uh, uh, person, and he was involved in... uh, He read philosophy, he talked to philosophers, debated with them at the time, and... uh, it was really characteristic of other uh, physicists at the time, too. He was not alone in that. Schrodinger was also very inspired by philosophy, but sort of drew, drew very different conclusions. But the main point is that he actually, when you look at what he did, he didn't really do that. His metaphysical sort of views and his comments would come at the very end of his work. Once he figured out the result when he once he figured out the principle or once he figured out the the uh, model of the atom the way he did it was actually sort of a a, a bottom-up approach uh starting with the experimental results and trying to reconcile them and that's what he was trying all along and that's that was if if there is a Niels Bohr's method, I think it, there is. That's what he actually did. Very sort of a slow climb from the experimental results, putting in the brackets and kind of really trying to forget about all the metaphysical ideas and uh, different metaphysical notions uh, before you actually construct the model and the results. Then you can try to kind of clarify with the help of these various ideas. So I think people, many people got it sort of backwards. And then once you actually see that, that he was a kind of a staunch empiricist, kind of an inductivist trying to induce his models and principles from the experimental work, uh, then you realize this is why his models are... So this is why people who actually care about coherence of these models in sort of philosophical terms, in metaphysical terms, will not be happy with the result. It's nothing new, really, in the history of science, actually. Whoever preferred that kind of method, sort of inductive method, where you build slowly hypotheses from bottom up... Uh, is bound not to satisfy the wishes of those who are really keen to 
to have like a very kind of a neat and polished metaphysical sort of set, metaphysically satisfying uh, 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 model. So I that think makes- that's what was really kind of going on. And then Schrodinger, that you mentioned, I mean, we just mentioned that Schrodinger had a very, very different way of uh, doing physics and. One of the points in the book is that this is one way, one trajectory, one method that Bohr practiced. Other physicists are, you know, have very different approaches. You know, they go sort of uh, from very abstract models to the phenomena, and that's fine. It works sometimes. Sometimes Bohr's um, uh, method is more successful. But really, what was interesting about that whole community of early quantum physicists is that they sort of battled, not only in terms of their theoretical models, but the ways in which you actually arrive uh, in these, uh, to these models. And then Schrodinger was really sort of the exact opposite of what Bohr was doing uh, uh, at the time, just sort of having kind of a red lines, almost philosophical red lines that couldn't be crossed in when you're uh, trying to come up with a model, when, when you're trying to come up with a physical explanation or formulas, even for, formalisms. Uh, uh, and that, that's what they debated actually a lot. So you talk about how he builds the hypothesis bottom-up. There's a bottom-up construction in everything that he does. Um, could you talk a little bit about how he builds these hypotheses and what is a master hypothesis? Uh, yeah, so... <clears throat> Again, I mean, I, I looked at Bohr because he's really sort of a prime example of this. But uh, in a way, my sort of a main goal was to understand at least one episode in the major episode in the, in the development of quantum mechanics and physics, generally speaking, and to figure out how this sort of way of inducing uh, these very abstract models uh, uh, works, right? Uh, so there are sort of three levels of hypotheses which are interconnected uh, as the theory is uh, actually produced. So the lowest level are the uh, is the experimental level. These are sort of very local in a way, focused on phenomena, uh, uh, experimental hypotheses. And usually uh, the experimental physicists are coming up with these. They just want to explain certain patterns that they see, uh, they build more precise equipment and they improve these and then they debated among each other. One of the really uh, great examples of this was uh, early uh, spectroscopy, which was one of the key results for Bohr's uh, 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 model of the atom. Um, so they, they debated about various patterns that you get when you actually analyze the spectrum of uh, 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 hydrogen or, or helium, or these sort of simple atoms. Uh, uh, and, and these controversies lasted, lasted 10, 15 years, right? So these experiments, these experimental hypotheses are, in that sense, very local and focused on particular phenomena. And then you have scores of these different hypotheses. It's not always clear how they're connected, whether they're connected at all, right? Different sort of a, a, a light scattering of light, for example, along with the spectroscopy um, scattering of uh, 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 light at different frequencies and so on. 
And then uh, there is kind of a medium level hypothesis where a certain properties which are kind of general and apply across these or can be inferred across these seemingly different experiments and experimental hypotheses kind of start emerging, right? So it was fair, it was fairly clear, for example, from these spectroscopic uh, uh, results, results of the spectroscopy, that there are certain elements of atoms which are kind of constant, right? So physicists were not for a long time clear what these are. And then uh, but they understood there are they call them terms, right? So there's something that's kind of constant across these and that produces always uh, these stable results in, in spectroscopy. But then it took a much sort of a more abstract hypothesis or really models of the atom. And that's what I call actually master hypothesis that really unifies these seemingly disparate experiments through these intermediate hypotheses uh, where physicists actually said, well, these little uh, uh, constant parts are actually electrons or negative charges. And this is how they are actually related to the positive charge. And this is what the structure is. So they tried a different uh, master hypothesis, uh, uh, but sort of emerging from these experimental re- results and these local experimental hypotheses at the local level. And then Bohr was really master in a sense of doing this. He was really always careful and constantly in touch with experimentalists from very different sort of, at the time, seemingly different uh, areas of work and uh, studying seemingly different phenomena and trying to connect this all the time and looking at the best ways to actually connect this. So this is what I would call sort of inductive hypothetical uh, uh, model of of figuring out or sort of uh, coming up with a physical theory and sort of at some fairly general abstract level. That's fascinating. That's so cool. So in the book, you also talk about uh, how some of the critics have described Bohr as an anti-realist because they interpret his writings wrong. What is an anti-realist and why did they think he was one? Yeah, I mean, again, uh, Bohr, I mean, to be fair, Bohr was a kind of a a difficult writer, right? He he wasn't somebody who would uh, write sort of uh, easily and, you know, a lot of physicists yes. But so there are certain aspects where you could think that he was anti-realist. Anti-realism is a, a sort of a view in philosophy where, I mean, there are various kinds of anti-realism, as one might imagine. But they're uh, roughly, realists are those who believe that uh, posits in the theory, for example, when you say electrons or uh, atoms uh, correspond more or less to something out there in the nature, and we kind of identified that particular a kind of entity or property with our theory that exists out there. Uh, now, you can believe that uh, physical theory doesn't really tell you that. It just uh, is a, sort of a, a, a tool that, or sort of a 
construct that agrees with your uh, experimental results. Whether there is something uh, further on in the nature that corresponds to that is the question we can never really address. And, you know, science doesn't really, uh, is not meant to address that. What's important is that you have agreement with experimental results with your observations, careful experimental observations or results of experiments. And then in that sense, anti-realists would say, well, you know, it's not the business of the uh, science, scientific theory to tell us what how the world really is, but uh, to come up with the theories that agree with our experiences. And it's what's called colloquially the shut up and calculate approach. That's kind of the uh, later version of that sort of a philosophical attitude that people would say it's is not philosophical because they're kind of used to it, but it's exactly that, right? Just do your, you know, calculations, see whether it agrees with the experiments and leave these philosophical questions for philosophers and, you know, don't waste time with that. That right. came later, right? And then typically, very often, Bohr is blamed, actually, for this. Now, what's interesting is the first thing that's interesting, Bohr didn't really calculate that much, actually. Uh, much of his uh, 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 atom and uh, model of the atom and uh, early uh, later versions were results of really sort of intuitive leaps. And there is clear evidence for that. And everybody around him knew that he's not really uh, big on math the way that some of the younger physicists at the time were. Uh, so he was certainly not the one who would say, shut up and calculate, right? I mean, he, of course, calculated, but he really wanted kind of agreement between the uh, 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 physical model that he produced, certain properties of it, and the experimental results. He was almost like an experimental physicist in that sense. And then he was really aware of this kind of anti-realist attitude that Heisenberg at the time was kind of flirting with. He was more of an instrumentalist, so that... Theories are instruments for prediction and nothing more than that. They don't tell us anything about nature, nor do we really care about that. And then he explicitly denied that in his correspondence, actually. So it's fairly clear when you read kind of a sort of more synoptically what Bohr was uh, doing, that that was not his mission to push the kind of anti-realist philosophical agenda at all. Uh, he was, in a, if anything, he was kind of inductive. He wanted like agreement with uh, experiments, but was deeply interested in what uh, really that theory, quantum theory that's emerging, is telling us about the nature of physical properties. And he would reflect on that. So it's fairly, when you take that into account, it's, I think it's really fair to say that he wasn't an anti-realist in any sort of a strong sense of, of the word, especially it wasn't really pushing that agenda at any cost uh, on, on to others. Definitely. You mentioned a little bit of his correspondence with Heisenberg. And in the book, it's very clear that you took a fine comb and look at all of his notes and all of the available correspondence. Tell me a little bit about the process of putting all of that together, all of these historical sources and his papers and all of the notes. Um, yeah, so... Uh, I mean, uh, the book like this, the one that I wrote, uh, wrote couldn't actually have been written uh, before all the 
collected works of Bohr that were published one volume after uh, another since sort of uh, a beginning of the 70s, early 70s were slowly sort of redacted and came out. So that was the first, and, that, and they're really sort of invaluable source because all the correspondence there, all the versions of papers and so on. So, I mean, as one could imagine, I, I sort of took uh, a long time. I, this sort of, I worked on this for about 20 years overall and uh, publishing papers and trying to sort of connect the dots and really triangulating between what historians said, what the correspondence says, what philosophical interpretations he had to say, what uh, other people said about Bohr, his peers, and so on. So, I mean, I really had to, uh, if I wanted to sort of seriously undertake a task of uh, understanding what Bohr, um, what motivated Bohr, what may, what sort of methodology uh, drove his work, I really had to connect all these uh, dots and, I mean, predictably, it had to take a, a long time to, to do this. But I started it fairly early. Basically, when I started my graduate studies, I, you know, I, I couldn't stop <laughs> working on it. I'm still fascinating by, fascinated by that episode in the history of physics. So the book lives at this intersection of history, philosophy, science. How do each of these influence the other, in your opinion? Um, So there is kind of two big streams in uh, uh, philosophy of science, philosophy of physics, philosophy of science more generally. One is more interested in, uh, so people who, who, who do that are interested in sort of conceptual puzzles in particular theories, for example, in uh, a general theory of relativity or in quantum mechanics, trying to figure out certain or to kind of uh, perfect certain uh, notions which figure in these theories. And uh, it's very valuable work. And it's kind of dominant, actually. But then there is also uh, a sort of philosophically motivated reading of history of certain episodes in, in, in physics, uh, where you try to figure out uh, certain methodological and epistemological questions by really carefully reading uh, history. Uh, and then you kind of have to read historians and to be, in a sense, historian, uh, but with this sort of a motivation to address particular philosophical, methodological uh, 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 questions. So... This is, you kind of have to keep an eye on both uh, philosophical and historical concerns, but that's what makes it really interesting and uh, valuable. And that's sort of, for me, that's the natural way, actually, uh, to do it. A lot of physicists kind of wave their hands and say that philosophy of science isn't really that important to them. Famously, Feynman said that philosophy of science to scientists is basically like ornithology to birds. And I I don't necessarily agree with that comment. And I was wondering what your take on it is. What can physicists learn from studying Bohr's views and approach? So uh, this uh, relationship between... uh, uh, physics and philosophy is very interesting in the last 100 and 120 years. It has, it's, it sort of fluctuates. There are periods of convergence and divergence, and now we are in the period of convergence, I would say, over the last 20 years. And 
physicists talk to philosophers, some at least, really sort of theoretical physicists dealing with fundamental, sort of foundational stuff. Uh, uh, and uh, it really also depends uh, what sort of philosophy of physics is, is done. So uh, as far as this famous, uh, uh, famous uh, uh, remark goes, uh, that uh, philosophy of science is what uh, to physics is what uh, ornithology is to birds. I mean, it, it's kind of true, uh, but that in, in in the sense it's I- irrelevant. I would say because uh, ornithologists, when they study birds, they are not really trying to improve what birds do. Uh, you know, to improve how they fly and teach them. That's a very good point. <laughs> about their uh, trade, uh, but they can tell us all kinds of interesting things and have really interesting uh, and very important sort of uh, consequences. So, for example, you know, we can preserve certain kinds of birds when we uh, learn more about them. We can and. Find out whether they are low flying, whether they are high flying. You know how to connect our environment with them so we don't affect them. And I think that's one of the ways in which actually history and philosophy of physics and science in general can be helpful, because physicists do not really make their decisions what they're going to study and how. On sorry. Uh, how they're going to structure, for example, their teams and labs, how they're going to be funded. These are kind of larger societal uh, decisions, government decisions and so on. So you can screw up uh, the physicists' work in all kinds of ways if you fund them poorly, if you uh, organize them poorly and so on, if you really interfere. So it's very important to have a clear view on what physicists are doing, how exactly, and when, in what environment, larger environment, they are at their best, right? So uh, one of the very important, I think, uh, ways in which studying history and sort of philosophically studying uh, physics, sort of epistemologically, is to find out precisely this. I mean, physicists do that to an extent, but, you know, they have their daily daily work and uh, interests. They can't really uh, deal with that. Sometimes they have. But in that sense, I think that history and philosophy can be very informative and helpful, actually, to uh, uh, physicists and physics community. And uh, understanding history is crucial, actually, of, of physics uh, crucially understanding what actually uh, physicists are doing. You've spent so much time on working on this book and also researching Bohr's work. What are you working on now? What are you, what's next in terms of writing, in terms of teaching? Uh, so uh, I am, I've been uh, for the last maybe a year or so uh, writing, co-writing actually, uh, uh, a book on um, quite different topic, actually, still physics, but a completely different area, uh, modern cosmology, actually. Cosmology, basically, since the discovery of the cosmic microwave background as the kind of the milestone uh, in, in modern cosmology. So it's, a, it's going to be a book uh, with 
one of the uh, major publishers. And what we are trying to do in the book is to show that uh, this very simplified view that uh, the Big Bang, hot Big Bang, more precisely, uh, model didn't immediately win when the cosmic microwave background was discovered. That it was a very slow process that took many, many alternative views that were developed in the decades following the discovery all the way to the 2000s, basically, by major physicists or cosmologists at the time. Some of them actually were uh, the key physicists uh, in developing the Big Bang, but they worked on these alternative views, which are completely fascinating, actually. What physicists came up with, what, what, what kind of alternative views. I mean, more famous is uh, also is Hoyle's stationary state model, but there are all kinds of other very interesting. So this is also interesting for us to understand how in reality these big theories that we need in the end are actually uh, uh, um, developed and how they're helped by all sorts of alternative views which are in the meantime sort of developed. So that's the, that's the, the book we, we, we are working on at, at the moment. That's very exciting. I look forward to reading it. Well, thank you so much, Professor. It was lovely to have you on this episode. Thank you, Anna. To all of our listeners, you can find From Data to Quanta online and in bookstores now. I hope it intrigues you and makes you ponder the nature of scientific inquiry, as well as appreciate or question the stories we tell about great scientists and their discoveries.